You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Jenny Thornley, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and film valuer. Jenny's poetic essay documentaries, Island Home Country, To the Other Shore, Maidens, and a collaborative feature for Love or Money are landmark films in Australian independent and feminist cinema. Jenny is an honorary research associate in the School of Communication, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Technology, Sydney, where she lectured in documentary and completed her doctorate. In this episode, we talk about Jenny's ongoing relationship to film, beginning with her father's cinema exhibition business in the 1950s and 1960s, Tasmania and Victoria, through to her current archival project, Memory Equals Film, based on her Super 8 collection, recently acquired and digitised by the National Film and Sound Archive. Jenny also shares her very personal approach to developing this film and the influence of the Japanese death poetry tradition on her process. Here's my conversation with Jenny Thornley. So Jenny, thank you for joining us. Uh, now we met over 10 years ago when I was doing some postgraduate study at UTS. Yep. You taught um, issues in documentary, which was a really interesting um, interesting subject. Um, now you're more, you, are, you do make documentaries, one per decade from memory. Um, what, where, what are you doing now and where did you, you know, what have you been doing for the past, um, well, many years without uh, going into the detail of that? Well, um, hi, Mark. Good to see you again. Um, yeah, we met, as you said, while I was teaching issues in documentary at UTS, which I taught for 13 years, while I also did my doctorate, which was a film called Island Home Country. And I'm currently working on probably my last film because, as you also mentioned, I make one film a decade, more or less. And, um, well, I'm 70 now, so (laughs) if this one takes me 10 years, I'll be 80. So I've got to make haste slowly, otherwise I mightn't be around to finish it. Uh, Agnes Varda is my great heroine as a filmmaker, and she's just died this year, I think, in her late 80s or early 90s, and her most recent film is screening at this year's Sydney Film Festival. I saw they have a, mm, a like the, a kind of retrospective. Yeah, of, they've got a massive the, retrospective. Her recent film is called Agnes by Varda or Varda by Agnes. But um, maybe to just flesh out your question a little bit more, maybe I'll just track back to what brings me to film, if you like. Yeah. How come I ended up working in film? Um, and, and that... To make that answer not too long um, chronologically, can I just say that it took me a long time to realise the influence of my father on me and my filmmaking because Dad was a cinema exhibitor and owned a chain of cinemas in the pre-television era and in the silent period it was a family business. So I was born into a family where that was my father's profession and his father's profession. But I didn't realise the impact that that was having on me then, certainly when I was a student at uni. So where was this and when was it? That was in Tasmania where I was born, but Dad's family had cinemas across Tasmania, southern Victoria, uh, the major cities as well as most of the country's towns. And they, um, they actually were completely tied into the American majors. So my father was no... Um, Uh, exhibitor who championed the beginning or the renaissance of an Australian film industry. On the contrary, he was completely, you know, American majors and Paramount, MGM. So I grew up in the cinema watching all those sorts of films as a kid. I didn't realise the significance of film on my mind. That took a long time to track back and realise there was a connection. So when I went to uni in the 60s at Monash, there were no media studies courses then in the 1960s at, in, in tertiary education as we have now. Uh, there were art schools that some of them had a film course like Gillian Armstrong did um, uh, Swinburne. She went to Swinburne Tech and she made her first film there which was, anyway we won't go into her first film. 
Um, but at Monash, when I did my degree in the 60s, there were no media courses. So I did a straight Bachelor of Arts degree and a major in English Literature and Political Science. But I became very involved in the theatre group and the film group. Not only the film group in terms of, like the film group in terms of film watching, like cinema exhibition. There's so the, you, you there's probably, the link to the father. You probably said, oh, you've seen that one. You've seen that one. No, because no? the university film group was not having anything to do with the American majors. The university film group in the 60s was completely enthralled by the new wave, which is what I was arrived at uni. Not only was the Vietnam War raging, but uh, feminism hadn't exploded yet. And um, film, the films that we were screening in our film group were the latest films by Antonioni, by Bergman, by Goddard. And, you know, to someone who'd grown up on a diet of the American majors, to suddenly be at uni watching films like The Seventh Seal or Fellini's Eight and a Half or Antonioni's uh, Red Desert or, you know, any of those, L'Aventura, those films were just uh, masculine, feminine, by Goddard. Like seeing those films as a 17-year-old straight out of the suburbs in high school and the American majors and then be exposed to this sort of avant-garde, in a way, tradition of filmmaking that was coming out of Europe, really. That had a huge impact, but I still didn't realise the impact was layering down on this influence of the father. And I'll give you this little piece of the jigsaw puzzle because it sort of brings us up to the present in a way, is that when I finished my first degree, I started my master's and I started doing my master's on Edward Albee's play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because I'd seen the film with Elizabeth Taylor and Great Richard film. Burton. Very confronting in a, in a way. Very confronting film, wonderful film, wonderful play. And I decided to do my master's on that play and the film. I didn't realise at the time when I was doing it, and look at the title, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the meaning of that phrase, that actually that was a film about my parents' marriage. Can you? Wow, uh, that's... So my that... father was an alcoholic, became an alcoholic. My mother wasn't, but um, when the picture business crashed, which is when television came in in 1956... My father, we moved to, from um, Victoria, sorry, from Tasmania to Melbourne, and Dad had to run the family picture business. His brother died, his father died, and he had to support his brother's family as well as support us. This is in the era where middle-class women didn't work. So the men are totally breadwinners and they have these dependent wives and families. That's the model that I grew up in. So he was supporting two families and he couldn't support it. Once television came in, all the picture business just crashed i have heard that major so you're living with a man who lost his brother lost his father lost his work uh lost his identity i was thinking that yeah because a lot of men do identify very strongly Through. a lot of people do with their work he was also very um he was involved in liberal politics in tasmania he was the mayor of launceston he was a big guy around town you know and he had a big ego, big strong presence, and suddenly there he was in Melbourne with these two dependent families, the figures completely falling out of the cinema business and no income to support the families, and basically he basically hit the bottle. And so I grew up as a kid then in a very... a lot of domestic violence, a lot of anger, a lot of rage, all repressed. So when you saw this film... Yeah, as a student at Monash in the film... What, what happened? Well, for you. Well, obviously, it really spoke to me. But look how long it takes. And I've since supervised students doing masters and examined doctorates and so on. And you begin to see how long it takes a student to begin to understand what's motivated them to take on a particular thesis topic. So, what motivated me to take on the thesis topic of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I hadn't made the connection to my own family, and a really good supervisor could have helped me make that link. She or he might have said, "Why have you chosen this play by Albie? Why have you chosen this film? How does it resonate with you? What's the autobiographical inflection here?" And that's that's a topic for a thesis in itself. But in a sense, in that era of the '60s. People weren't thinking like that, like it's almost like that era of the autobiography that when you came into my course we were studying and I subsequently 
when I began making films, I made autobiographical films. It's like the 60s, there weren't those sorts of works yet, although Fellini's Eight and a Half is a totally autobiographical film. So um, that's just to give you the groundwork of the filmmaking um, side that it's layered down in this kind of very passionate and personal family history where film figured very, very largely, but in a sense in the shadow, the shadow side of growing up with a father who lost everything because of television, which has led to my intense interest in technology and changing forms, which is a subject which I taught in the course. Um, so it's a long way to explain or map out here in this little first part of the interview how I came to make certain films. But from being that uni student of 17 or 18 and then making acting in films at uni in the film group, uh, breaking up with a big male presence at uni who became my boyfriend who actually also became a filmmaker and was making those big movies like The Man from Snowy River. He was my boyfriend in the late 60s when I was doing my final year at Monash. That relationship broke up uh, badly and I decided to run away to Melbourne. Sorry, run away from, from Melbourne. Melbourne to Sydney. So I got on, I, was, I had several jobs. I was doing the MA on Edward Albee and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I was teaching English at a school, a girls' school in Preston, and I was Michelle Grattan's research assistant in the politics department at Monash. And when the relationship imploded, as often happens for people, I just uh, ran away. And then when you, when you got to Sydney, to Sydney, what, what did you do in Sydney? I came to Sydney with this passion of um, uh, trying to become an actress and with a goal of trying to get into NIDA. Oh, yeah? Uh, because a number of my friends at Monash, who I was in the Monash Players with, which was a theatre group, were all planning to audition. We didn't have a theatre training school in Melbourne. They were coming up. We were all auditioning together to get into NIDA. And I joined various theatre groups, like underground theatre groups. One was called the Australian Arts Laboratory, where we were performing kind of new age plays, like, not new age, um, how do you say, experimental theatre. Alex Buzo, The Front Room Boys, oh, yes. John Romerall, um, a few titles like that. So I was acting in this theatre group. We'd do Grotowski would come. We'd do Grotowski workshops. Even Tom Zubricki, the documentary maker, he was involved in this and he did Grotowski workshops. So there was much more permeability back in the 60s and 70s between, if you like, the avant-garde, the arts, political documentary filmmaking and conventional film and theatre, it was all together. It wasn't kind of like siloed yet. It's become much more siloed, I think, as the years have gone by. Um, not so much in Indigenous filmmaking, which I think has a, is much more permeable and fluid. Um, so we have approximately 30 years to get us up to speed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened? And then what happened from working in fringe theatre, I didn't get into NIDA. Um, I met um, a group of us all joined the ALP. We were still under conservative rule, uh, the Liberal Party. I'd, the Liberal Party had been in power since I was born and then the movement to get Whitlam into power and Labor into power gathered uh, energy, tremendous energy combined with the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement of which I was an active participant. I was in a street theatre group against the Vietnam War I met Martha Ansara, the documentary filmmaker who'd just arrived from America, who was heavily involved in the women's movement in America. And I started going to women's movement meetings, meetings to join the ALP and stack the Balmain ALP branch meetings so that we could get a really good local branch to help get Whitlam into power. And as well, we formed the Sydney Women's Film Group, the Sydney Filmmakers Co-op had formed, and Martha and I started making a film together called Film for Discussion, which was finished in 1974, where I play the main character, who's a girl, an office worker, who's kind of on the precipice of women's liberation. And there's this amazing shot at the end of, I think it's amazing, but there's this amazing shot at the end of Film for Discussion 
of me looking at myself in a mirror and Martha held that shot for I don't know it's like on screen for like three minutes or which is really long mirror shot and subsequently there's been some theoretical work on the mirror shot in film for discussion which has talked about made me go into the meaning of that shot in terms of being able to then work within the genre or mode, if you like, of autobiography, which is what I then turned to do after that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to talk about that? Well, I guess we've got, only got a couple of minutes in this first segment, <laughs> but it's more just, to, I kind of um, feel as though there's a big gap of just so that, just to round out what, what you've been doing since since the kind of, I guess, the mid-70s. You've made a... Well, I made Maidens after Film for Discussion. I started a film called Cup of Tea, which is about getting an abortion when abortions were illegal. It was a drama. Yes. And I got funded for that film. In the end, I couldn't make it myself because I just wasn't ready to deal with that subject, which Mm. was based on my own experience of getting an abortion when they were illegal in the 60s. So I turned that project into an essay autobiography about my own family, and that was called Maidens. And it did extremely well. It got lots of prizes, and it went into a big distribution through the co-op, and it really got me inspired to work more in that kind of compilation essay film mode. What, what's that, what does that mean, compilation essay filmmaking. filmmaking? It means making films from archive or material, and like old film, historical film, and bringing it together to recontextualize that film to tell a different story. It's um, it's a mode that goes back to, in a in a sense, the Russian the filmmakers from the Russian Revolutionary period, where filmmakers would take films from the government archives, if you like, and reposition them to tell a different story. Like a mashup type thing. Yeah, kind of like a mashup, if you like. And sometimes they have narration, but you tell another story out of that footage than what that footage was originally deemed for. And you've continued that style or that approach. Yeah, I love that style. Yeah, what is it about that 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 resonates with you? Why do you like that? I, I like the archive. I like archival film tremendously, and I'm... Looking at a, um, I work as a, I work on other people's films, helping them with their edits and so on, and different stages of cuts. And I'm consulting on one at the moment, and I feel that a lot of people don't understand how to work with the archive. The archive is like to me gold, and it's like each sequence of archive or film needs to kind of sit in its own merits rather than just be used illustratively, if that makes sense. So a lot of filmmakers use the archive to illustrate a point. Whereas this way of using the archive actually respects each shot in terms of its integrity, if that makes sense. So it's working with the archive in a more, I feel like, pure form. Um, There's certain films that have done that really strongly, like uh, Philip Mora made a film called Swastika, which is about the growth of the Reich, completely using archival film. He then made Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? So they kind of like totally respect the archive and they don't just use it to illustrate a point. Um, So then I made For Love or Money in a Collective of Women, and that's a film about the history of women work in Australia. It took six years. And then I made a film on motherhood and psychoanalysis, which is based on my own experience of being a mother. Then I made Island Home Country, and now we're back to the present where I'm working on Memory Equals Film. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I understand that you are in, well, effectively pre-production. You're in a planning phase of a, a new archival project related to memory. Yeah. Look, this project's been kind of um, in my mind for quite some time, but it's really uh, quite a process. Well, filmmaking is such a process, especially for me, because I'm very slow. Um, I had this. I have this Super 8 collection, which is 1976 to 2003, of 143 roles. That's a lot of Super 8. And I've shot... A, I've shot that Super 8 
um, over those years. A lot of it is not just home movies of family, but a lot of it is of quite a bit of its film I shot on the set of a film called Journey Among Women in 1976, which is about a, a film with the script by Dorothy Hewitt about a group of women who are, who are convicts who escape the convict cell and go and live in the bush and kind of experience liberation, but the soldiers come and recapture them. So it's kind of like an allegory of women's search for freedom. And I was the camera assistant on that film and I shot a lot of Super 8 on set. And uh, so there's a lot of different themes within the Super 8 footage. And I knew that I had to get that footage digitized. Otherwise, you know, it's going to kind of decay. Digitizing is to copy that film from being film to... Yep. its physical form. From its physical form to a digitised yep. computer algorithm. Yep. So you might do that just for, to archive the, the kind of footage, but also if you want to actually use it. Yeah. In, so in a... I put up a pro- proposal to the National Film and Sound Archive a couple of years ago. I said, what if I donate all my archive to you? They have all my archive. This is about the relationship of a filmmaker to the National Film and Sound Archive because another one of my hats is I'm a film valuer for documentary film. So when a producer donates a film to the archives, they can also have it valued by a film valuer for its market value, and they can claim the value of that film off their tax. Now, I've been valuing... Value as an asset? As valued as an asset. So I've been valuing film since the 1990s, and the first collection I valued was the Movie Tone Cine Sound collection, which, of course... My father screened in his theatrettes. One of the ways he made money after the cinema business crashed, this is about the archive, was they set up theatrettes next to their cinemas and they ran newsreels all day. So I also grew up watching all those newsreels. So you can imagine what it was like to then be an adult in the 1990s. I've ended up becoming a film valuer and I'm valuing the Movie Tone Cine Sound collection, which was then in the vaults in, our, in, a, in an archival vault in Roselle before it went down to the National Film and Sound Archive. So I'm just painting a kind of frame to put around my own interest in my own archive. That is, I could see the value of my own archive from a film valuing, from a film valuer's perspective. So So, has that process begun? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's done. I submitted a proposal to the archive. What if I donate everything that you haven't got already because they've got a lot of my films, uh, but I'll donate all of my paper archive, whatever film archive you want, and I will donate my Super 8 collection, and what if I do? you do a contra? Will you digitise my Super 8 as a contra, and I will write some articles for you? Or so I put up kind of like artist-in-residence proposal because you're always having to find ways to finance a project. So that process, a curator was put on that job, and the National Film and Sound Archive, she decided to purchase the Super 8 collection for the archive. So she put a dollar figure on that Super 8 collection. And they agreed to digitise the footage, give the footage back to me on hard drives, you know, external hard drives. So I've got the footage now. It's I own copyright. They've got the original and they've also got their own digitised copy. And the second part of the job is for me to get all my other archive down there, my paper archive, etc. So I am in the... I won't bore you with the technicalities, which is very complex around the interface between all the kind of computer technologies that I'm dealing with to make this film, and that's really slowing down the conceptual work on the film. But I'm in the middle of uh, shot listing the Super 8 archive by themes. So, well, yeah, I was going to ask, how do you approach such a project if it's so much a part of you and your perspective and your emotional okay. components, memory? Yeah. So I'll give you this um, doorway into the footage. A couple of years back, a friend gave me a book called Japanese De- Death Poetry. And I started reading it. And it's... <laughs> Sounds like it's a great, great read. <laughs> Japanese, death Japanese death poetry. And it's like... Can I ask what, what is... So, it sounds obvious, but what is it about? Well, and I, I'm linking... Yes? It's actually the intuitive 
internal framework for this film right. I'm making. Because when I started to read these poems, which are basically koans, which are kind of oh, like yes. a koan is like a kind I of like riddle, a little tiny yes. poem like With, a riddle. It's not quite resolved or it allows you to branch out your, uh, you kind of um, interact with yeah. the, the notions. Rather the reader than... has, to, has to hit you somewhere in the mind or body or heart and you sit with this koan. It's like if a tree falls in the forest, that's a, a really over, over. Yes, or the used, sound of one hand clapping. The, the, yeah. These sorts yes. of things. So there's a tradition in Japan, long, long tradition, centuries old, where householders and the Zen Buddhist monks write poetry in their latter years to prepare themselves for the great journey to death. And their poems are left as legacies to their culture and to their children and their families as this was their state of mind as they were working towards their dying. So I read these and I thought, well, what an amazing kind of way of making another film. Like if I used that impulse of Japanese death poetry as my theme and then I'll find a way of getting my archive to play around with that theme. So I thought, well, okay... My Super 8 archive is my visual material, um, and that's what I'm currently working well, like, with. Like, I guess, you, like if you're writing poetry with words, you might look at a vocabulary or how different words yeah. to describe different things, but you've got film. I've got the images. And the images. So, so I've got this uh, images from 1976 to 2003, and I'm trying to create some rules to work with formally that make my task less expensive for the budget. Oh, yes. And also stay true to the heart of the film, which is an essay, a film essay on transit transitoriness or the passage yes. of time. So now, that's what I'm doing. What what are, what are your <laughs> thoughts on the notion of kind of some people think that once you get into this territory, you start codifying things that that's almost like the opposite of a kind of the, the great expanse of creative ideas or, you know, experience. You're sort of putting them into these forced categories or themes. And I mean, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on yes, that? Yes, I do. And. I turn yet again to the Japanese death poets and some of the Zen teachers who give teachings exactly on this subject. So I've realised one of the things I'm doing is I'm making a Buddhist text because I'm a lay practitioner of Buddhism and I'm a what's called a contemplative. So what lay practitioners of Buddhist, Buddhism do is they spend time each day in meditation and they are contemplating. So Contem in this case, in your case, you're contemplating what? You. Contemplate no, or no, life or no, not me anymore. Contemplating, um, just living in the present. Yeah. And not living in the past. So it's strange to be making a film about memory, but actually, in my mind, I'm doing a practice which is always just coming back to being present. So I'll give you an example. To your very important question, aren't I just? isn't this form of filmmaking just codifying rather than actually kind of just allowing something to be in the stream of life? I think that's sort of what you were saying. But the poet, uh, not the philosopher Dogen, the monk Dogen, I can't read you his whole poem. I can, it's here. But he basically says in one of his poems, um, um, what's important, quote, something like this, what's important is the ordinary things of life, making tea, boiling water to make the tea, these scarves, these beautiful scarves, um, uh, so beautiful in a master's painting. No, it is this world that is the diamond. So that's kind of a precy of Dogen's great poem, which is basically saying, in a way, that art is always a poor reflection of what is important, which is life. I mean, that might sound basic and a truism, but that's actually what I'm making a film about. That, that it might be a beautiful work that I'm making, it might be a beautiful film, but actually the ethic with which it's made is not about the construction of that aesthetic beauty of the film, but is actually how I live my life in the process of making the film, that it accords with that ethic of 
uh, what's important is the ordinary things of life. What, does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm kind of. I feel mm-hmm. as though I am keeping up, but I just want to. I want to just clarify, mainly for people that might be listening. Mm-hmm. What What's this thing? The ethic or the What's that? Like you kind of. Well, the ethic is. Um, well, ethics. There's many ethics involved in documentary filmmaking, but but. And that's a whole topic which you know something about because you did my class. So even in my Super 8 archive, there's the ethics involved in using that collection, which I will have to face. That's a separate question than, mm. the, than the other ethic that we're talking about, ethics of life. Yes, yeah, so what's that? Or conversational ethics. Yes. When conversational ethics, let's say, is about listening to the other person and giving the other person space to be heard and them giving you the space to be heard. That's conversational ethics. You know what it's like if you've got a friend and all they do is talk about themselves and they never even say, how are you? And they go. I have experienced that. And off they go. Yes. And they've spent the whole time kind of, you know. Enough about you. What do you think of me? Yeah. Or enough about me, I should have said. Yeah. So conversational ethics can take place between two people or, or a class of students when that ethic of allowing each person to be listened to and heard is really respected. Some people do it literally and they have a talking stick, you know, and they pass it around and you've got three minutes or five minutes and each person holds well, the talking you stick. you are on the clock here, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the clock. So there's this other ethic, which is the ethics of living, which is Dogen's great poem, is a teaching on... No, you, not, it's not the painting and its beauty and the last brushstroke that's important. What's important is how all the participants around this painting being painted, how they're living. Oh, can I give you another example? Yeah, certainly. Like I really like um, the program on the ABC of Doan, the, what's his name, the painter. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, he paints the different people. He paints. Week. I've forgotten his name. Anyway. Last week, he did uh, Walter, the father, who had three family members shot at Port Arthur. Well, Port Arthur's in my film, Island Home Country, and I'm very interested in Port Arthur. I'm Tasmanian. And this man, Arthur, his, his wife and two children were shot at the massacre. And uh, the painter who was painting his portrait conducted the conversation while he painted him and he told the story of his grief and loss. It was a beautiful example of conversational ethics, I think, where the ethic of um, that painter deeply respected the trauma that this man had suffered. And at no point did you ever feel that this was being compromised by the ABC, by the painter, by the program, that there was something really kind of heartfelt and sincere and whole and ethical about that interview. Now, you don't get that much in Mm. media. In our contemporary media. You don't get that much, but that was like a little gem of, to me, something where it's working well, the ethics are working well. Yeah, that's clearly that's something that's important, if not like really central Mm. to your process. It's central to documentary filmmaking, but unfortunately it's people don't, a lot of makers... And participants don't understand that, but it's central. So what are you hoping that, like with this particular project, who, who, how, how will people experience it when it's in its final form? You know, or Mark, is that I, not... I don't go there. If I went there with that question... I mean, some filmmakers do go yeah. there, but I'm, I never have. Actually, with For Love or Money, I went there with the group of women that I made the film... We wanted For Love or Money to reach a wide audience. Yeah, with the outcome. An educational yeah. audience. We wanted that film and the book we did with Penguin to be in every school library. We wanted to get a sale to television so that it was, you know, we wanted to go to international film festivals. We wanted to screen on international television. We had a very strong story to tell about the history of the liberation of women in Australia. And so we were really had a strong sense of, our goal and our purpose. But with my very personal films, I don't have that. They're more a kind of inner process, an inner ethical process for me. And if they find a resonance with other people, that's great. But if they don't, I'm not attached. (laughs) 
You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Okay, now we'll just get into more of a continuation of your... Um, you're making a film, but it's not, uh, you know, it's got its own... You've got your own approach to this sort of uh, type of film that you've, you've made before. What what are some of the, the tricky aspects that you've had to wrestle? And, I mean, how do you start making decisions about what, say, the logging process, or how, how does that work? Okay. <clears throat> um, luckily that I, I've got an honorary research position at the uni, which means I can access, and I don't have a budget for this film apart from what the archive purchased the Super 8 for, um, which isn't a lot of money. And I don't want to go through funding applications to screen Australian funding bodies because yet, because maybe I'll try and get what's called a first assembly or some kind of a rough cut. And then maybe I'll look at how I can raise money to pay another editor to come on and a sound composer or a sound designer. But first I need to kind of get the shape. So I'm in the early days of getting the shape, if you like. And that, that, the form that's taking at the moment is that I've got all the Super 8 is now in an external hard drive. So it comes up onto my computer with all of the images chronologically from 1983 to 2003. So you told us earlier that you were... You, Shot this, listing. So this, I'm going through that footage. But there's different different contexts and different situations. It's yeah, sort of... there's all sorts of things. And I'm going through, and as I've shortlisted, I thought, oh, I can shortlist this by theme. So what are some of those themes? Yeah, well, I don't have the list in front of me, mm-hmm. so I'm having to just dig into my memory. But some, <laughs> well, some the project's the, about memory. Some of the themes are, well, Journey Among Women is not a theme, but that's a category of... I've shotlisted all of the Journey Among Women footage. I think it's under the category of my filmmaking. So that's a theme, my filmmaking. Um, Family life is a theme. War is a theme, uh, because each of my films, in fact, has an anti-war theme about it, embedded in it. It's happened. That's every film does. Um... Um, time-lapse is a theme that is time-lapse photography is a theme that's where you film in a certain way where you not just slow material down but I used to put the camera on a tripod and use what's called an intervalometer which takes says 24 frames in a second and in Super 8 there's 18 frames in a second so you can set an intervalometer to take different frames out of that one second 18 frames so it creates a strange kind of like jagged sort of effect or a very um, uh, if it's a sunset it speeds the sunset up you sometimes see it's an effect used in films yeah so I've got a whole theme called time lapse because Do, I've done a lot of time lapse photography are they in in camera kind of effects yeah it's oh. in camera effects yeah and um, so that's a theme and another theme is um, films about film okay that um, sounds very meta uh, another one is um, street life because I filmed a lot of stuff on the streets yep. around where I was living. So, for instance, there's a piece of film, which is one of my absolutely beautiful pieces of film that I love that I've shot, is I used to live in a house in Glebe in the 80s where in the front flat was a mother, single mother with two girls, and they were the first girls to become uh, newspaper deliverers in the afternoon. Wow, and, a traditional male role or yeah, male job, and yes. And they used to have the little trolley and they'd go up. And so one day I said, can I film you? And they said yes. So I filmed with them the day they went up to the newsagents in Glebe Point Road and they got all their newspapers and, and I filmed them. And I filmed them a whole kind of afternoon with them as they did there on Super 8. And it's a really beautiful street life. Of so Glebe in the 80s, although it looks like it's the 50s. They're so. in the category of street life, did you say? I've put them in street life. Or, but then at what point um, do you look at, say, the mechanics, if that's the word, versus the more cultural or the kind of more sort of um, social aspect? Yeah, or, so for instance, some of my footage, I've shot footage here and there of protest movements. So I've got various demonstrations over the years that I filmed. 
So I've got a section called um, Revolt. And um, and so anything that's do, to do with revolt, I put into that theme. So I'm building up the themes. I've got about 20 themes. Right. And one day recently, as I was I'm about a third into the archive, I thought, uh, I, how am I going to structure this film? This film, which is about death poetry. Yes. <laughs> or in, which is which is intuitively fueled by the metaphor of transience and making a film in that tradition of the death poets, how am I going to structure it? So I thought, ah, if you think about a film like Chris Marker's Sunless. Oh, yes. One of the ways he structured that film was through this notion of the Japanese poet Sheshonigan. And she, in the Japanese court tradition, there was a tradition of poetry which was made of lists. As we hear the child next the, door on the plastic bike, yes, yes. The children are getting their trolleys out and about to go down the hill outside the doorway. <laughs> and we'll hear We'll them. be all right. This is, <laughs> this is our contemporary world. This yes. is it all happening. So as Marker structured Sunless as his lists of things that quickened his heart, I am creating my lists from my archive of um, images that are relevant to my theme of uh, making a beautiful work that is a gift to my children of how their mother and grandmother lived her life. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I guess that kind of uh, documentation throughout. Yeah. That life is a gives you a really good start on, yeah. you know, you've got a great archive to work with. I've got this great archive. So one of my challenges is, which I'll put now, try and map out to you, you might feed back to me on this, is I've made a current rule that this film is only going to be made up of my Super 8 archive. Now that's a rule that kind of like keeps it simple. Yeah, well, I guess what what are the advantages? It keeps it simple, yes? It keeps it simple, and then it also... I want to make a film, I think, that's not autobiographical. So I want to use this archive that is my own personal archive, but it's not a film about me. So how does that work then? How would that... Well, that's the... I'm very torn because I've always made... Apart from For Love or Money, which is a film about women in Australia... It's not about me, although some of my films are in it. But I've always made Maidens and To the Other Shore and Island Home Country uh, personal autobiographical films with an eye voice narrator mm. and, it's, and it's a journey into the self. But so, I don't want this film to be like that. I want it to be in accordance with the Japanese death poetry tradition or the Zen tradition or the Buddhist tradition says there is no self actually, that actually one of the purposes of the contemplative who sits for meditation is to gradually begin to see as they focus in on the present and the past falls away and the future falls away that also what falls away is any small sense of self and there is no self. So it would kind of be counterintuitive given the form and content of this film for it to be a film about me. Yeah, I guess I, I follow the, the logic, if mm. that's mm. what you would call it. I follow the kind of stream of, of mm. what you're saying. However, you still need that little on-ramp because you're, a, you know, you've got to get onto that, into that space via you as a person and your archive. I've even thought of using a pseudonym. I mean, it's a secret now. I've put the secret out. But I thought, well, what if I made it with a pseudonym? Didn't you make it as me? Uh, well, and then I put start putting it in film festivals or whatever, but not as me. It's got no history. Yeah, because it is kind of. I mean, I guess it is brings it? into that the notion of what is an archive and what is a personal life. Because I think of those, like there was a, a exhibition recently of the um, different photography around Sydney in the nineteen uh, just uh, during the war, war years and street photography. And at the time, they would have been so individual, these people, and it's a photograph of them, and that's why they've purchased the photo later on. But then over time, it does tap into a big collective memory of everyone. And even people that, um, you know, you, you're not related or you don't know that person, but it still resonates mm. a something. Mm. 
so it's whatever you call that, like a broader mm. kind of universal understanding or something. Um, and so I guess it's... I'm very puzzled by it because I have a subtitle for the film, which which is the title is Memory Equals Film. And a pra- this is a working title. And the subtitle is Diary of a Filmmaker. Now, if I actually really wanted to kind of flesh out Diary of a Filmmaker, then I would be calling on a separate archive than just the Super 8 archive. Yeah. Because that's then, like, there's films that I've been involved in and that I'm in that have never been in shown apart from the moment. I'll give you an example. When we were making For Love or Money and we finished it, I was interviewed on the Mike Walsh show. I've oh, got yeah. that interview. <laughs> when we, I was only speaking about which the Mike is Walsh amazing. show this morning. And I've had students that, you know, did my course who end up working in the archive and they phone me and they say, I'm just logging the Mike Walsh show and there's this interview of you with Mike Walsh in 1983. Mm. Do you want me to send you the um, um, a video? You know, I'll, I'll email you the link. And they email me the link and I look at it and I thought, that's amazing, I could use that. So, yeah, yeah at that moment, yeah, because you, you've kind of, it's almost like a, well, as we have the decisions that we're making each and every second. Yeah, so that's not the super eight, then that's quite different. And then this same ex-student of mine who was working at the ar- archive changed, left that job and went to work in the archives at the University of New South Wales, emailed me again out of the blue mm. not so long ago and said, I'm just logging Films found you from again. the UNS library, and you, you're you in a film made in 1970s called Quite a Long Development. And it films when Maidens won the prize at the Sydney Film Festival in 1978 for best short film. I went up on stage and made a political speech about women, and Jackie Weaver and David Stratton are standing on stage, and I'm kind of this angry feminist who goes up and doesn't just say thank you very much and gets my prize. I'd like to see I that. just go kind of like, went for it. Now, why don't I use that in the film? Well, yeah, it sounds you know, as though like, you've made the decision. Or no, did I? I haven't, sense? but you they're haven't. there. Oh, it's a good thing to be torn, probably not I'm torn. torn but it's by a, it. It's a kind because of like... Because then it locates the film yeah. once again to being about me, where if it's just the archive of Super 8 in these themes... You can abstract it it's into something. It's something quite other. And uh, but time is running out, and at seventy, I don't have a lot of time to play around with a number of films. No. So maybe their section, the film, is actually in parts, mm. and those diary parts of being a filmmaker are a different section. Maybe there's, the, you know, when you have like the DVD and you have the extras. There's the, that. The, the DVDs the are dead form. I know. So yeah. that's over. But I've got to tell you something else. I, I. See you looking at your own clock. That this is about transience and temporality. The things do end, but you know every film that I've made, apart from film for discussion, which isn't my film as such, is my Super Eight. Maidens has got my Super Eight in it. For Love or Money's got my Super Eight in it. To the Other Shores got my Super Eight in it, and Island Home Country's got my Super Eight in it. So what if I actually also pull from each film how I've used my Super Eight? in those other films and that's a section yeah well i guess you've that's amazing bring the film about film category that's the film about film now that's separate from the film from the super well you seem to be quite immersed in film for your whole life i've now created the three parts of this film in this discussion with you well jolly good (laughs) (laughs) there's the super eight film in its own right the japanese death poets film there's the Super 8 in the films that I've made and then there's the films that have been made about me that have used footage that other filmmakers have made. So, so will it be like a trilogy or just... Well, we just created it now. Well... In our conversational ethics. <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it did come to mind when you brought That's that up earlier. That's a possibility. But, you see, once you try and use those sources, other sources... It becomes more expensive. Yeah, I guess they're the practicalities of working with that's, archive material. That's more expensive because it's more time-consuming because you've got to get good quality images from those other sources, and then you've got to and there's all the time of getting that material and getting it into the cut and all of that. But that's what faces me. Yeah, all of that. 
So when we were talking earlier, you was, I asked you um, about how audiences might respond or something like that, but then you, were, you floated in the, the, the idea that it's, it's really, that's less of a concern or a thought, it's more about the process of putting it together, or, but I mean, how do you, you know, how do, where, where, what would you like to see happen to this that you're currently creating? Well, um, this is it's, this is a very important question and one that I I guess I'm sort of evasive about because I think it's um, you don't want that question to impact on your process of making in, in in a negative way that disempowers your creative process that might sound a bit kind of you know uh, I'm up myself but I don't want the sense of oh well who would want to watch that. And make it into a kind of um, how's the word disempower myself from kind of the sheer pleasure of the process. What you were saying earlier, some of that resonated with on a learning and teaching yeah. level. Sometimes you're critically assessing the student's output, or you're critically assessing the student's process. And you know, I guess the two versions of assessment. But then sometimes in certain areas especially creative arts the process is so significant that that is its own that the most important aspect not so much the deliverable as they sometimes call it or the the yeah. thing that the thing that is the resulting piece but i guess in our in our everyday era that resulting bit is often the focus and not not the other not the complete Contemplative, contemplative yes. processes of the everyday tasks, making yeah. a cup of tea, or yeah, yeah, or so, the air that is sometimes in conversations. Yeah, it's it's very hard. Like, um, the, you see, the thing as well though is that in this era of technological change, which is happening in a massive rate. All of my films are available digitally on video on demand on a website called Beamer Film. Now, the average price per view for a 50-minute, even a 90-minute film like For Love or Money's 107 minutes is three dollars per view. Now, that's criminal. That that film that took six years is a significant work on the study of women. Has you know took six years to make, has had this extraordinary, you know, story. It's been um, in the National Art Film and Sound Archives restoration program because of its significance as a film. It's, it's available $3 per view. Now, how can a filmmaker make money out of $3 per view? We can't. So if you get too caught up in this question of who's going to see it, the reality is that documentary filmmaking does not make money. But the majority of the mass are not earning a living from their work. So this notion of who is it for is vexed because is it for the pay-per-view audience of $3 a view and you've spent 10 years making it? That's my phone. I forgot to turn it off. We're going to wrap it up in a minute. Okay. Literally a minute. Yeah. So, you know, there's many questions in there about who is your audience. So I think the first audience is oneself. In this episode, I chatted with Jenny Thornley, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and film valuer. You can find more information about this episode, including links to Jenny's website, blog, and publications in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.